0: Amen. Well, good morning, new city. Let's try that again. Good morning, new city. It's it's lovely to be together in the house of the Lord. Uh, My passage this morning will be taken from 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you have a Bible, please keep that open in front of you. As my mother will tell you, he's very, very tricksy. And so if you want to make sure that I'm not tricking you, please keep your Bible open in front of you. That will be very helpful to me. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, reading from verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, and infant, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talahim, two hundred. 200,000 men and a foot, 10,000 men of Judah, and Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you have shown kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hevelah as far as Shah, which is east of Egypt. Then he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But... But but Saul and the people sped Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lamb and all that was good, they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and was worthless, that they devoted to destruction." The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel arose early to meet with Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel that Saul came to Camel and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and he turned and passed on and went down to Gilgag. And so so Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you, blessed be you, the Lord. I have performed the commandments of Yahweh. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And so Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people sped the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, our God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said though you are little in your own eyes you are not the head sorry you are not the head of the tribes of Israel the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said go devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils and do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I have gone on this mission which Yahweh sent me. I have brought Ahag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people the people took off the spoils of the sheep and the oxen and of the best of the things and devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgad. And Samuel said, has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he has in, obedient, in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fed of rams. For rebellion is of the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you as king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Samuel, I will not return to with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh. And Yahweh has rejected you from being king of all Israel. And so Samuel turned away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and the Lord has given it to your neighbor, one who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, return with me that I may bow down to Yahweh your God. And so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before Yahweh, And Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed me. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women and children, sorry, has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And so Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh in Agag. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Giba. and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved, he grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel just so far in the reading of God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would be with us today as we come to your word. We notice that we are weak, we are vulnerable, we get easily distracted, and so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, be merciful on us. Lord, pour out your spirit on us, that we may hear your word, that we may see marvelous things from your word, that you would take your word and apply it to us, that you would save us from distractions. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago I heard a story of a man who had three kids and he was going to the beach with them and he was giving his wife a break. And as he was going to the beach, um, he was on a rather busy street and he was getting the children out of the car, he started with the two, three-year-old, and he said to him, stay right here. This is a busy street. Don't move. And he turned, and he opened up the car seat to get one of the kids loose, and he heard people screaming, and as he turned, the child that he told, stand right here, was in the middle of a road, and a truck was coming from the other side. So he ran, grabbed his child just in the nick of time, and brought him to safety. And in that moment it occurred to him his son almost died because he would not listen to his father's word. And so he made a vow and a promise to himself that he was going to do everything to train his children to hear and obey his word. Because his, life, his son's life almost came to a very sudden and abrupt end because of lack of listening. And he thought to himself, if if this child is not trained to obey me, if this child is not trained to hear my voice, how will he hear the voice of his eternal father? And as disastrous as his death right now would have been, it would be more calamitous for him going through life, ignoring and rejecting and disobeying the word of the eternal God and to face an even more severe consequence. Well, we come to a passage today where we have a son who chooses not to listen to the word of God and we see that the consequences for him are even more severe. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1, follow along there with me. Uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 15, follow along there with me, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. The key note in this chapter is struck by Samuel in the first verse. He says, listen to the voice of God. Samuel orders Saul to listen. The word translated here as listen is sometimes also translated as hear or obey. It comes up in our text at least seven times. It's here in verse 1. We see it in verse 14. We see it in verse 19. We see it twice in verse 20. We see it in verse 22. Sorry, twice in verse 22, once in verse 20, and also in verse 24. So everything in this chapter hinges on the king's ability to hear, to listen, and to obey the word of God. And so the question is, will God's anointed, will God's chosen one be obedient to the king? Will the king, God's anointed, be obedient to the king? I should point out to you that Saul has already before noticed the importance. He's already heard in chapter 12 about the importance of listening and heeding the voice of God. In chapter 15, he's already defied the word of Yahweh. And some translators even say that in chapter 10, 17, when he was hiding from God, he already started disobeying the word of God by not showing faith in it. Whether you take it that way or not, it is clear that up to this point, Saul has shown a pattern of not listening to God. And so when God comes here and God here sends Samuel to him, and God says, listen, this really is a grace and a mercy from the Lord. God is being gracious. God is warning him. God is sending him a prophet ahead of time and saying, Listen. And we should not miss what is happening here. Samuel, as the prophet, is in a position of prominence over the king. In this this chapter, right? It, It is Samuel, when he comes to him, he says, it is me that make the word of God known to you. It is me who has anointed you as king. It is Samuel who is the agent that brings God's word. It is Saul who needs to listen. And, and we kind of miss it in the English, but literally it, he says, it is me, emphasis on me, that the Lord sent to anoint you as king. The implication is don't forget, never ever forget, that even as king, you are subject to the word of God. That even as king, You are under the authority of the word of God. And so what what is it specifically that Saul was supposed to obey? Well, let's look at verse 2. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, oxen, sheep, camel, donkey. Do you notice the mission? He is to devote to destruction everything that they have. Nothing or no one is to be spared. Absolutely everything has to be destroyed. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. The word translated here as devoted to destruction or utterly destroy, depending on the um, translation that you have, is a single word in the Hebrew. And the verb is, you know, I'm gonna try and pronounce it, but we never pronounce these Hebrew words right. Like, we, we, don't, we have no idea how they pronounce them. But if you were to transliterate it, it would be H-E-H-E-R-I-M, heherim It is used seven times in this account. And it's as though God is laying stress by repetition on the specific instruction that Saul was supposed to follow. It carries the idea of banning something, B-A-N-N-I-N-G, banning something. And it has the connotation of total destruction by divine judgment. In other words, what is about to happen to Amalek is a judgment of God because God's judgment on the Amalekites, because God is judging the Amalekites, nothing, nothing is to be spared. Nothing is to escape. Now let me put this in context a little bit for us. Back in the day when they went into war, the victors would take treasure they would take bounty, they would take loot for themselves. Of course, they would save some for the king, but it was customary for for them to take some for themselves. But in certain instances, God says to them, no, take none, give it all to me, devote it to me and the way you devote it to me is by completely destroying it. We have an example of this in Judges chapter six, when Israel laid waste to Jericho, when Israel lay waste to the city of Ai, they were told, touch none of those, bring it all to me. And in fact, remember in Judges chapter seven, there was one who tried to hide the treasure and keep it for himself, Achan, and the results were disastrous. And so when Samuel comes to Saul and he says, devote to destruction, Saul clearly understood what was being said. There was a cultural and historical context here. The reason I'm talking about Achan and Judges 6 and Jericho and and, and, um, Ai is to prove to you the fact that Samuel made clear and Saul fully understood what was being told. In fact, if you read verse 24, Saul pretty much confesses that he understood. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, your words, because I feared the people, and I obeyed them. See what he says? I feared the people more than I feared God. So I obeyed the people and not God. Now, for you and for me living in the 21st century, this might sound outrageous, How can a holy, loving, compassionate God ask for the destruction of women, children, and infants? It's a fair question, isn't it? And I think the first thing we must do is acknowledge that this is ugly business. This is horrible. This is a massacre. I mean, you can't put mascara on it and try and make it look nice. This is ugly business. This is judgment. Every woman, child, and infant ought to be slaughtered. It it is not nice. The second point I want to make about this is that Yahweh is holy and righteous. And his vengeance ought to be praised and not repudiated. Let let me say that again, if Yahweh is holy, if Yahweh is righteous, then his vengeance ought to be praised, not despised, or rejected. Let me try and explain that a little bit more. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Genesis thirty-six twelve tells us that the, the Amalekites had a long history of violence and hostility towards the people of Israel. They were the first human threat to Israel after the Exodus. In Exodus seventeen, we read about this. In Exodus seventeen eight, they opposed God's people, and God told Moses, "Write this down." I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Four decades later, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, towards the end of Deuteronomy, when Israel has spent 40 years wandering in the desert and they're about to go into the promised land, and Moses preaches this wonderful sermon to them. He gives them the law again. He reminds them how they are to live in Israel, how they are to conduct themselves as a people of God in Israel. One of the things that Moses points out to them that is really, really important to them is Exodus 20, sorry, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you. When you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, how he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind, he did not fear God. Therefore, when Yahweh, your God, gives you rest from all your enemies around you, when you are in the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you from an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. Don't forget. Do you notice what Amalek did? He despised God, and therefore he went after God's people, picking the weak and the elderly, the sick who were at the back, the ones who were following behind on the journey. He was like a scavenger. He was like a vulture. He was like a hyena, and going after them mercilessly. You know, a, a hyena is the worst coward when it comes to predators on the African plain. If you're sitting in the bush and a hyena sees you, it'll come charging and think easy pickings. But when you stand and it realize, oh, he's taller than me, it will break. And then he'll walk around and try and figure out, is he gonna shrink again? Am I gonna get another opportunity? When a hyena attacks, they look at a pack, and they look for the weak, the elderly, and the sick. Wolves do this as well. A pack of wolves, when they go after a flock, they figure out who's the weak, who's the elderly, who's the sick, and they try and eradicate them. right? And, and they will cut them off from the rest of the flock, and they will attack this one, they will kill it, and they will eat it. I don't have a problem with that. You know what hyenas do? Filthy cowards, they figure out who's the weakest, who's sick, and they will come after you, take a chunk while you run, and go nibble, and then come back again. That's just plain cruel. They'll eat you alive. This is Amalek picking off. God's people, because he despised God, going after the poor, the weak, the elderly. Sorry, not the poor. Going after the weak and the elderly and the sick, following from behind. The disdain for God's people did not end there. Even after Israel had entered the promised land, their hostility continued. Read Judges 3, Judges 6, Judges 7. You will see that they continue to provoke and pester God's people. And just in case you think to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, I get that. But are you telling me a former generation's sins are going to be put on this generation? Look at what the text says. The text describes the Amalekites as sinners. In other words, they never changed. In fact, when Agag is brought out and the sword is put to him, what is he told? Just as your sword has made mothers childless, so your mother will be childless. You see, they continued and persisted in their ways generation after generation, generation after generation. They killed babies and infants. They they lived on the south border of Israel. They were really a, uh, uh, what's the word, Um, a nomadic tribe. They had one or two cities, but by and large they were nomadic and, and they would raid and plunder farms and livestock from other uh, communities, particularly Israel. And so what God says here is not nice, but it is justice, divine justice. Yahweh, who is slow to anger, Yahweh, who is compassionate and kind, gave them an opportunity for 300 years to repent and change their ways, but they persisted in their ways, and eventually he brought to them his retribution. The people of God, rather than by being disturbed by this, ought to take comfort in the fact that we have a God who brings about righteous justice. We have a God who will one day throw down our enemies. Did you you read that in the confession? That Christ is king, and that means he's going to take care of his enemies and our enemies, now and then? If there is no ultimate vengeance from the enemies of God, then there is no ultimate deliverance. Right? Remember, as our pastor expounded for us, so well in Exodus chapter one, the people of God were under oppression. First generation was okay, then Joseph died. And we know they were in Egypt for 430 years, so maybe for about 360 years, they were bearing the brunt of slavery, and they cried out. It says that in, in um, Exodus one multiple times. They cried out. God heard, God saw and God came down. And when God brought his delivery, when God brought his judgment, he came to judge not just Pharaoh, not just the gods of Egypt, but the nation of Egypt. The firstborn of every Egyptian animal and human was slain. That's what delivery of Israel caused. So I have, I have a daughter. I have a son. They drive now. They come back home later than I like. One of them is going to college soon. And I pray, Lord, watch over them. Lord, deliver them. I have a mother. She's in South Africa. I have a brother who's hard of hearing. They are very vulnerable. And I pray God, protect them. Watch over them. Deliver them. You know why I have comfort from praying a prayer like that? Because my God has teeth. He can do something. What's the point of praying to a God who's a Mickey Mouse God? But my God has teeth. He can deliver them. And sometimes when he brings his deliverance, it's not pretty. Let me put it to you like this. Um, I have a Maybe let me say this again. The vengeance of God should bring comfort to the people of God. I was born in Kimberley, and I grew up in Mahikeng. And the distance between Kimberley and Mahikeng is about three and a half hours' drive. And though I was born in Kimberley and spent a lot of time in Kimberley, um, I would go back and forth between Kimberley and Mahikeng because both my grandparents, both my sets of my grandparents came from Kimberley. So almost, all, almost every vacation I was back in Kimberley. And when you go, you see your friends that you haven't seen in a long time, they know you, everybody in the neighborhood knows you, right? But there's always one or two new kids that come in. Now, I remember one time I was, I was traveling from my one grandparent's uh, house, to the other grandparents' house, and I was, and I was very close. And, and as I was making it, this kid was about to step up to me. And I didn't realize it, you know. And as he's coming up to me, there were a group of kids playing under a tree. And they looked at him, they said, do you know who that is? It's like, no. They said, that's Neo's cousin. You don't want to mess with him. And they goes, Neal's cousin? They say, yeah. And so he just walked away. <laughs> and that's when it occurred to me, okay, this is what this dude was about to do. He walked away. He walked away because he knew my cousin. And he walked away didn't knew because my cousin loved me. And he knew you don't want to mess with someone who is loved by someone as mighty and powerful as this. This is what the text is teaching. You don't want to mess with God's children because they have a father who is so powerful. Let me tell another story by way of application. The vengeance of God ought to bring out comfort. Robin Mugabe was a very good president until around the year 2000, 2001. Then things kind of went sideways. Uh, People's land was taken. In his own country, he did nothing. The economy free-falled and tanked. Um, The currency just, uh, it became ridiculous. Like, at some stage, you needed a wheelbarrow full of Zimbabwean dollars to go to the store to buy a loaf of bread. South Africans, we would joke and be, man, I'll go to Zimbabwe and I'll be a millionaire. So I would give them one rand, and I'd get over a a million Zimbabwean dollars. And I saw some of my friends, Zimbabwean friends, pastors, people that I had studied with, watch their children starve. They went from having three meals a day to one. In fact, one of my friends was a Hebrew scholar and decided that he was going to study the Precatory Psalms to see if it's okay to pray prayers like these when you have an unrighteous king. It got so bad that one of my friends said that when you have a cart and you go in the grocery store, you have no idea what food prices are gonna be. And so you have a section of the things that I can afford and must have, and the things that I really need, but I don't know if I can afford. And you only find out when you get to the toe what you can and can't get. He said it was so bad that if if you had a can of beans and you thought, I would really like this but I don't know if we can afford it, you don't put it back on the shelf. You put it in the cart in this other section because if you go through the store and find out you've got enough money and come back from it, the price would be jacked up. And Victor said this, and it made quite an impression on me. He said, the only reason I don't buy a gun and take matters in my own hands is because I believe in the vengeance of God and I believe in the justice of God. And so for Victor, he said, there is a hell and these people will pay either in hell Or if they accept Christ, then Christ will get the vengeance that belongs to them. You see, for Victor, the vengeance of God gave him comfort. And so as we look at applying this text, when we are mistreated, what do we say? Do we say, I have a gun? No, we say vengeance belongs to the Lord and because he's holy, and because he's righteous, when he brings his justice, he will always, always, always be fair. The other thing I wanna say about this vengeance of the Lord is that it is Christ-like. Look at Matthew 35, verse 31 to 46. Look at Matthew 35 with me. This is what the Lord Jesus says, on that day when he comes to fetch those who belong to him. This is what the Lord says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne with glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate from among or from one another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And he will place the sheep on the right and he will place the goats on the left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. For I was hungry. See, what is the basis? What is the basis that these people are treated well? What is the basis that these people are told to come? The Lord says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or a prisoner and visit you? And the king will answer them, I say to you, as you did it for the least of my brothers. The way that you treated my brothers was a reflection on the way you treated me. Verse 41, he says, but to those on the left, I will say, depart and curse the you into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels because I was hungry and thirsty and naked and a stranger and in prison. And you didn't clothe me or feed me or give me water or visit me. Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, I say to you, as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. Go away into eternal punishment. God so identifies with his people so that the way in which we treat them has direct bearing on how he treats us. So this is a a warning, isn't it? How, How do I treat God's people who are weak and vulnerable, who are elderly and who are sick? It's easy to talk about Saul's apostasy, right? What, what, what about me? How do I care for the vulnerable in the community of God? How do I care for my children who love God and my wife? The third point of application, I think nations like China and North Korea, where Christians are treated horribly, or organizations like ISIS or Boko Haram, or countries like Sudan, where God's people are mistreated, here's a stark warning for them. Beware. So that was our first point, that Yahweh's vengeance brings comfort. Second point talks about the repentance of Yahweh. It's really two repentances, what's the plural of repentance? I'm sorry, English is my third language. What's what's more than one repentance? The two repentances. There's the repentance of Yahweh and there's the repentance of Saul, as we will see in this text. And both the repentance of Yahweh is problematic and the repentance of Saul is problematic. Maybe we'll have time to look at the repentance of Saul today. I'm not sure, based on time. But if you look at the repentance of Saul, you see that Saul's repentance is superficial. But there's a problem with why Yahweh's repentance there too, isn't it? Look at verse 10 and look at verse 35. If you look at verse 10 to verse 35... The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and in verse 11 it says, I regret or I repent, depending on the translation that you have, this word can be translated either way. I regret or I repent that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And then verse 35 again, the Lord regretted or repented that he had made Saul king over Israel this section here starts and ends with the repentance of God. Verse 11 and verse 35 are bookends. And in the middle section, there's the interaction between Saul and Samuel, and we will look at that in a moment or at a different time. But but I think it's important to highlight these bookends because they are problematic. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, So we've got verse 11, God repents. Verse 35, God repents. And then verse 29 in between. And so the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret or have repentance for he's not a man that he should regret. Say, wait, what's going on? Does he regret or does he not regret? There it is, the Bible contradicts itself. Let's all go home. Does it really? I think sometimes when we come to a text like this and we see something like this, we wanna treat the authors as though they were idiots, right? He wrote verse 11 and then when he, somehow when he came to verse 29, he forgot what was in verse 11? Can't we give him a little bit more credit than that? He wrote verse 29 and he wrote verse 35 and somehow we thought that he suffered from some amnesia between these two verses? Is, is there something else happening here? Let's give the author the benefit of the doubt. In verse 11 and in verse 35, when the word regret or repent is used, it has an emotional connection. Yahweh is grieved, Yahweh is sorrowful, or Yahweh regrets that he made Saul king because Saul, the covenant king, has turned from him. However, in verse 29, when it says that Yahweh does not repent, what's the context? Here it means that Yahweh has made a choice that the king will not. The kingdom will be taken from Saul, and that Yahweh is not going back on his decision. He's not a wishy-washy God. He has made a decisive decision about the future of Saul and his kingdom. Verses eleven and verses thirty-five communicate to us that God is not in, an indifferent God. He's a God who. Cares about his word. He's a God who cares about the plight of his people. The first time in the Bible when we come across the idea of God repenting is in Genesis chapter 6. Look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 with me. Now read both verse 5 and verse 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth and that every intention or every inclination, depending on the translation you have, every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time or was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry or the Lord repented or the Lord regretted that he made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. You see the emotion there? God was sorry, God repented, God was pained. Though God is the God who knows the beginning from the end, he is not robbed of his emotions. He's still a compassionate God. He's still a loving God. He's still a kind God. And He's still a God who's grieved by His children's sin. We have a God who feels divine sorrow. That is what Genesis 6 tells us. Here and in Samuel 15, we have a leader, a covenant king, an anointed one who's supposed to be under the authority of God's word, but despises it and rejects it and chooses the will of the people above the will of God. I don't know about you, but it gives me great joy to know that our God is not an icy cold robot. He's one who cares about our carefully crafted apostasies. His divine heart feels deeply, intensely, the grief caused by the sin of human beings. And so verse eleven and thirty-five tells us that what Saul did was a tragedy of tragedy. Will we heed God's word? Do we grieve? over our sin. Verse 11 and 35 doesn't say that Yahweh was fickle with regards to purpose, but rather that he was sorrowful over sin. He wasn't flustered by lack of foresight, but he was grieved by lack of obedience. And so, I'm gonna bring things to a close here Skip a few things. Say so we have a God who is grieved by our Son, and in the New Testament we told that we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit for whom we were sealed from the day of repentance. We can grieve God. We have the ability to grieve God. Ephesians 4.30 says we we should not grieve God. And then Ephesians 4.31 says let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Let all malice be put away from you. In other words, the ways in which we grieve God is through anger, clamor, slander, malice. And then verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Now, I want you to notice the ways in which we, ordinary Christians, grieve God is not by doing big sins like rape and murder. It is by choosing to nurse bitterness and not to forgive one another. And you kind of, you know, I kind of get upset with Paul because the way that he puts it, He he gives it so much weight, more weight than it had in the Old Testament. He says, you were sealed. You were marked with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, is what shows us on the day of redemption who you belong to from now until then. And this precious mark that God gave you, don't grieve when you hold on to anger, to bitterness, to slander and to malice mm. the whole thrust of the section in Ephesians 4 to 6 is on holy living and so the opposite of grieving God is holy living and so when it says husbands love your wives at Christ life the church the context is don't grieve the Holy Spirit When it says wives submit to your husbands, the context is don't grieve. When it says children obey your parents, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Slaves obey your masters. Fathers, don't you dare exasperate your children. The context is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And so when I say I'm gonna be like Saul and have selective obedience, I'm going to pick these parts of the Bible that I like and obey, but these ones I'm going to ignore and ignore perpetually. I'm grieving the Spirit. When I'm not loving my wife like I should, when I'm not treating my kids like I should, when I choose not to forgive, I grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, when I look at this, I realize that I'm in trouble and I need a savior. I, 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 can't, I can't live the way God has called me to. I need a savior. And as I look at this crowd here, I'm painfully aware there's two groups of people sitting in front of me. There's a group that has bowed the knee to Jesus like me who says, Lord, I need you to save me but I also need you to make me more holy. And so day by day, I need to come to you and come to you and come to you and come to you and seek your forgiveness and ask for the power of your spirit to allow me to do what you have called me to do. But I'm also painfully aware that there might be people sitting here who have never bowed the knee to Jesus and who also need him. You see, Saul was a king who despised the word of God. Saul was a king who wanted to enrich himself by taking the choice things and saving the king for some political advantage later on. But Jesus, Jesus is a king unlike Saul. He did not turn away from God, but he was a king who obeyed God. He loved the word of God. In fact, he said to do the will of God was his food. That was his purpose, that's what he loved of. Jesus purposefully, resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem like a flint going to his death. Jesus obeyed God. Jesus took the judgment of God. Jesus took the vengeance of God so that you won't have to. In Jesus, the holiness of God is satisfied because he lived the life that we couldn't but in jesus the vengeance of god was satisfied too because he was put on the cross for us and then as he, and as you hung there on the cross arms wide open he looks to his enemies and he says father forgive them forgive them for they know not what they do what a king what a king we didn't have time to look at this but later on when samuel came to saul look at saul trying to throw the people under the bus Right, verse 8 and verse 9 tells us that Saul and the people decided to spare Agag and everything else. But later on, he says to Samuel, Well, the people. The, the people, not me, the people. Jesus is not like that. Jesus says, Lord, take me. Let me take the hit. But save the people. And so, as we're about to depart today, beloved, we have a choice. We have seen that God has compassion, that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is gracious. He sends warnings to Saul and he sends warnings to you. You've heard them today. But today he says to you, there is a different kind of king. It cost my son his life to save you. What will you do with Jesus? Will you accept this king? or will you face the retribution of God by yourself? God is not just gracious and kind and loving. He's also angry at sin. And he also brings about his vengeance. You know what the tragedy of this is, the rejection of the King of God, is that Samuel retreats and Saul retreats and the two of them never meet. The word of God is void from the life of Saul for 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 all of Saul's life. He never hears from God again. No comfort from God's word, no encouragement from God's word, no guidance from God's word. Don't let that be that be you. There's a place that's worse than when Saul is, and it's in hell, where not just the word of God, but the presence of God is absent for all eternity. Friends, if what I'm saying is bothering you, please come and talk to me afterwards. Or if it's pricking your heart and you think you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody who brought you here. Talk to our elders. This, 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 this might be the most important conversation you have. In Jesus, we have a mighty king who brings about the salvation of God, who listens and obeys his Father, who does the will of his Father, so that you would be saved.